Welcome to Investment Magazine's ongoing podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders and industry stakeholders at a time when the maturing industry is challenged to provide retirement solutions for older Australians, as well as continuing the work of building assets for those still in the workforce. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations and outcomes, addressing vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement and savings system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to continue the conversation. And now, please enjoy the episode. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with AIA Australia, a leading life and wellbeing specialist with 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Our topic today is loneliness. Loneliness is something that affects us all at one time or another, but since lockdowns, perhaps we're all a little more focused on the effect it has on people around us. And it's not just a mental health issue, but it can severely affect our physical health also. AIA recently partnered with Ending Loneliness Together, which is led by clinical psychologist Michelle Lim, who is a leading scientific expert on loneliness. Dr. Lim is an adjunct research fellow at the Iverson Health Innovation Research Institute at Swinburne University of Technology and an affiliate of the Prevention Research Collaboration School of Public Health, University of Sydney. Her research involves understanding the drivers of loneliness over time and developing consumer-relevant and effective digital interventions to reduce loneliness. Dr. Lim is also a practising clinical psychologist Michelle is also the co-founder and co-director of the Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection, which works with the World Health Organization. Today, I have Michelle Lim with me and Simony Fox, Head of Shared Value at AIA Australia, to talk about why loneliness is such an important issue and how we can work towards ending it. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Julia. Thanks, Julia. Michelle, specialising in ending loneliness seems like a very niche role. How did you find yourself here? Julia, you know, I've I've been a practicing clinical psychologist now for um, 18 years. And um, I often see people who live with other people who are well connected, who are employed, who perhaps they're even the most vulnerable are seeing, you know, clinicians on the ground two or three times a day. Um, But yet uh, they often complain about loneliness And um, it really kind of intrigued me and I decided to actually study this phenomena in my PhD and looked at how loneliness and mental health um, are connected and um, did did some study in the US. And when I came back, um, was actually approached by a community member who uh, herself was incredibly lonely and um, wanted to to think about what we can do in Australia to try to narrow the gap of what we see in science and what's actually happening on the ground in practice and in policy. So in um, 2017, we started Ending Loneliness together uh, informally and was very heavily based in New South Wales, Victoria and Canberra. But in uh, 2020, we actually formalised as a not-for-profit and we have around, you know, 50 to 60 members and stakeholders all kind of filtering into this coalition, 
all coming together to focus on combating chronic loneliness across um, across all ages um, and in, in, in people living here in Australia. And with your stakeholders, where do they come from and what's their interest in ending loneliness? Mm-hmm. So a lot of stakeholders were frontline um, services. Uh, for example, we have Uniting Care Australia, Relationship Australia, so large um, not-for-profit, nationally-run um, organisations focus on improving relationships um, in, in people who are otherwise very vulnerable. But we also have some really small grassroots. Uh, we also have you know, people like Men's Sheds, for example, Neighbourhood Houses, um, that actually joined this, this organisation. But also very importantly, I think, loneliness became really, uh, started to become on the radar for businesses because... We actually know now that loneliness is an issue for the workplace. You know, it's really associated with um, lower employee productivity, engagement, um, um, and and things like, um, you know, presentism or absenteeism. Um, And and we are increasingly getting more corporate sectors really being very interested in how they can actually affect a positive change within their employees um, themselves. So it's a wide range of people um, and we're just very, very fortunate to actually gather this this many support. We, we think of loneliness as really a, a very much a complex issue that can't just be um, resolved by just us. And so to have this support with over 50 members and stakeholders, um, it really means that we're, we're stronger together. It's a fascinating topic. And Sim... How did an insurance company like AIA become interested in loneliness? AIA is a purpose-led organisation. So our purpose is to make a difference in people's lives and help them to live healthier, longer, better lives. And when we became aware of the impact on, on, of loneliness on health, we really recognised it as being a health emergency. So through the work that we did with Dr. Lim, we realised that that the research shows that loneliness has a 26% increase in premature death, a 29% increase in um, the risk of coronary heart disease, uh, sorry, 32% increase in the risk of stroke. And people struggling with loneliness are 17 times more likely to make a suicide attempt So I think historically we have thought about loneliness being something that purely affects your mental health, which is incredibly important for us as a life insurer, particularly on the back of the pandemic, the fires, the floods that we've seen in Australia. People's mental health is really taken an enormous battering and we have a responsibility to support people to remain well with their mental health. But in addition to that, of course, that physical um, aspect for physical health has a, a huge impact with loneliness. So we, we do look for shared value opportunities. We look for uh, opportunities where we can solve a societal problem and by doing so that supports our members, it supports our customers who we insure, it supports our superannuation funds and it also helps us as a business to uh, be more sustainable, which gives back uh, to our customers as well and support society as a whole. So having a strategy that really looks at um, how we can improve this social, societal issue around loneliness made sense to us. Those are incredible statistics. That must have been a surprise to find that it, loneliness had such an impact on physical health. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think we all go to the mental health aspect, of course, because it, it does make sense that if you're lonely, your mental health would be impacted. But there is really strong data that shows that loneliness also has that impact on, on physical health. And if you think about us as a life insurer and a health insurer, that's going to have a profound impact on our clients' experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so loneliness seems to be something that everyone suffers from at one time or another. Is that right? And when does it become an actual problem that um, you're looking to solve? So loneliness um, happens to all of us. So none of us are really immune from feeling lonely. And I often say um, that, you know, our experiences may differ from each other and may take a, a different shape. Um, and you know, there are groups in our community or uh, there are times where we're more vulnerable to loneliness. So if we're going through, say, a social transition, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad social transition. Sometimes it's starting a new workplace or, you know, moving to a new country for for exciting things or, ha- or even having a new baby. Those those events uh, tend to make people more vulnerable uh, in, in terms of experiencing um, loneliness um, and 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 of course, we know also, you know, with kind of more negative events like bereavement, loss, um, you know, a divorce, those things are also triggers. So I think that because we're living a life that's very much full of ups and downs, you know, loneliness and and is an, an experience that all of us will experience at some point. Um, now we're really, from the research point of view, understanding even differences between loneliness that is experienced in a very severe and distressing phase versus loneliness that might be experienced in kind of more low-grade but more persistent and enduring phase. Um, We know now that when we um, have kind of more enduring experiences of loneliness, that actually exacerbates our mortality risk and morbidity uh, of other disorders. Um, that's really emerging data that's just coming out because traditionally we don't actually think of loneliness as um, an enduring or, or chronic phase. But now, now really understanding the data and actually understanding that there are groups of people who don't experience high levels of loneliness but experience very long-term loneliness, and that's actually bad. Um, and what we really want to do here and to be very clear, so when, when we say we want to end loneliness, what we're actually really saying is that we want to end chronic loneliness because loneliness itself is a natural state. What's not natural is that we stay lonely. And there are a lot of factors that keep us lonely that are often not uh, within our control. So um, things like kind of big, larger, big systemic barriers. If you're living in a poorer neighborhood, if you're unemployed, um, if, if you're not able to get um, access to to uh, or move about in your community very well. If you have a health problem, uh, often these things are not within our control. But we 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 stay lonely because we're un- unable to control some of these factors. And once I guess you're experiencing it, does it um, become more natural to keep experiencing it? Like once you've been cut off from certain groups, I guess to re-enter. Um, that, that's a very good question, Julia, and we don't know because there are some people who have enough resources uh, internally and externally to actually overcome these bouts of loneliness and actually 
you know, especially if they're fortunate enough to be embedded within an enriched social environment, even if they're lonely, they might be more protected from chronic experiences. But there are a lot of people out there that may not be in those fortunate positions um, if they are um, perhaps even kind of uh, what we call community, for example, or living in, in a neighbourhood that's incredibly deprived and, and a lack of access to, to, to safe spaces. Uh, all those factors mean that, you know, they're more likely to, when they get lonely, they're more likely to remain lonely. And, and the, I think the tricky thing about loneliness is that um, we all think that we know the solution because we feel lonely at some point. But my solution is going to be very different from what might work for you and what might work for Sim. Um, and so it's really important for us not to keep trivializing it and tell people who are lonely, oh, just go and join a group or just go make a new friend. Because saying those things is actually incredibly demeaning and, and disempowering to the person who's lonely who may be experiencing factors that they have absolutely no control about. So we really need to be very careful about how we talk about loneliness. And um, I guess that it is also in part of the language that is used for people. Yeah, absolutely. People who are lonely are, are likely to conceal their loneliness. They don't feel safe to talk about being lonely, which primarily really comes down to the fact that they think loneliness is their fault. Uh, we know now that, you know, that's actually not the case. Loneliness is a feeling that is triggered because we're meant to do something about connections, not very dissimilar to feeling hungry or thirsty. It's part and parcel of the way we thrive and flourish as humans. But in society, somehow we manage and probably years of um, misconceptions about lo what loneliness is, the way it's portrayed in the media, uh, the way it's then, um, you know, um, uh, I guess you know, people judge loneliness, um, you know, um, yeah, or people who are lonely um, and, and negatively judge them over the years. It's kind of compounded to the point that, you know, being lonely and, you know, and being lonely becomes something that you feel like it's your fault. So for anyone who is listening out there, I think it's really important that you recognize that that's actually a really normal feeling is really just a signal for you to do something different about your relationships. Perhaps you want higher quality, more meaningful social connection, or that you want simply a few more people in your lives so that you have the diversity in, in the relationships that you, you have at the moment. So I think the language and how we help people with loneliness is really important in being in that group, being able to feel like they can ask for help and not feel demeaned and, and, and disrespected when they do ask for help and, and that they feel comfortable um, saying, hey, you know, Sim, I'm really lonely today. We'd love to have a coffee. Can we, can we meet and have a coffee? That should be part and parcel. That should not feel weird to you <laughs> if we do our job very well. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. Sim, what's been your experience in the workplace with loneliness and staff? Yeah, I think it's an interesting time, Julia. Um, we've been through long periods of lockdowns and working at home 
And uh, we had a lot of staff start during that time um, who joined AIA and had never been in the office. And, you know, we're now returning to the office, but some of these staff actually are university graduates and have never been in the office. So it's not a matter of returning to the office, it's going to the office. So we, we recognised that there was an opportunity at AIA to improve social connection with our staff. We know the health benefits of good work are really strong. There's a lot of evidence around that. And, and Michelle mentioned before that if you have really rich social um, environments, that can help you to connect with people. And of course, work is one of those environments. Being in a, in a workplace that, where you're socially connected to people is absolutely a protective factor for your health and well-being. So we decided that what we would like to do is uh, to look at how we improved our social connection at AIA, having been working remotely for a long time as we moved into a hybrid environment. So we partnered with Professor Nick Epley at Chicago Booth. And uh, Professor Epley ran an experiment at AIA for us where um, we had basically a, a, a number of social interactions which were uh, organised through meeting up at a coffee cart. So we had coffee carts in each office and we had um, two types of social connections and it, it was a proper experiment. So even my team who are involved in the experiment, I didn't even quite understand how it was being uh, shaped. We, we had to trust Professor Epley and uh, he, he's, he's incredible at the work that he does in social connections. So what, what we had was one group of participants who met at a coffee cart and the coffee was just there and it was scheduled into your diary and you would have a coffee. And then there were another group of people who would turn up to the coffee cart and they would be given some questions, some prompts to help uh, facilitate conversation. And over a period of time, uh, you would turn up to your coffee cart sessions and you would participate in a number of um, uh, questionnaires to look at what your health and well-being was like and your expectations around this, this process. So the interesting part about the experiment was that we didn't discover a difference between whether you had the questions. So we, we thought that, um, that potentially there might be a difference between the experience of those two groups, but there wasn't. But what we did see was that um, over time, the health and well-being of our staff did in fact improve from that, that connection. Um, and one of the questions we asked people at the beginning and, and actually before each, each experiment was, um, you know, how did you feel about the concept of meeting with people? Was it, was it going to be awkward? Was it, was it not going to be awkward? Was it something that you enjoy, would enjoy or not? And the really interesting piece was that people thought the process would be awkward, but what happened was it wasn't awkward. It was much less awkward than people anticipated to be connecting with people at work who they hadn't previously met. And, um, People who thought that it was going to be an unpleasant or, you know, experience that made them nervous didn't experience that. They actually enjoyed it. And interestingly, Professor Epley was able to measure that we learnt over time that we would adjust. We wouldn't, we wouldn't worry so much about these social interactions as we gained this learning. And I think that's a really important piece because, um, you know, I think about teenagers. Teenagers are all connected online and they're often nervous about meeting in, in person, but it's something that you can encourage teenagers to, 
to keep doing because they will learn that it's easier over time and and easier for many Australians, I think, who have that social anxiety on the back of the pandemic. But um, by by understanding that over time it, it will it will be easier, it's not going to be as awkward and as difficult as you might expect. So we were really delighted to see that employees reported feeling less lonely and happier over time. They also rep- reported slight improvements on depression and life satisfaction measures. The other thing, the other piece that came out of this research that I thought was really interesting is that introverts benefited just as much as extroverts, which I've always thought was quite interesting. I I am an extrovert and I'm known for being quite chatty. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, these poor introverts that I bombard, you know, they probably don't want to be speaking. Um, But in fact, it's just as good for the introverted people within the organisation to be connecting. So um, the the take-home message that I think uh, we all got out of this uh, experiment, which was shared with the entire business um, by Professor Epley, was that um, social interactions with people do make you feel less lonely, even if they're strangers, so people that you don't know, um, which is really interesting. So if you think about in your day-to-day movements, if you just chat to that person in the cafe that serves you your coffee or the person in the street that, um, you know, you're waiting next to for a bus, have those little social interactions and it will improve your well-being and also theirs. Um, but the other piece that, that Nick, the call to action that he gave us as an organisation was to be brave with social interactions because they're not as bad as we think. Oh, that's fascinating um, research and how interesting that AIA did that. Um, did you find, I found that during COVID when I spoke to people in the workplace, I thought introverts would be happy to be staying at home and not coming into work and having to interact. But actually, I found that it was quite the opposite because they weren't the types to make the connections outside the workplace and, and give a call to their colleagues necessarily if they were lonely or you know, on their own. So, you know, that was quite surprising. Simony, did you find anything about um, whether different ages were affected differently or genders or cultures? We didn't in this research. We do know, however, um, that all ages are impacted by loneliness. I think historically we've tended to think it's something that impacts elderly people, older Australians living at home isolated, but loneliness actually impacts every every age bracket, every cohort of Australians. Um, So we know that the learnings that we have taken from the research that we've done are going to be beneficial for everyone in our organisation, regardless of what demographic they are. Um, And who in your research, Michelle, might loneliness become a problem for? So we do know that um, loneliness affects, as Sim puts it, um, at all ages, but there are some groups that um, are particularly lonely. Um, if you are, um, say, for example, transitioning into um, from high school into um, post-high school, which might be include university or further training or employment, um, that, that particular group tends to experience higher um, levels of loneliness, particularly when they're trying to navigate new social challenges into into another world while maintaining the old ones that they have. And often young people are, are having to navigate 
relationships are that are not of their same age. So they they actually um having to to learn to have a, a different kind of conversation, learning to interact differently with people who might be older, uh, who might be already in the workforce. So that 18 to 25 age group, we, we know are particularly predisposed and in fact um, might be the most highly prevalent, maybe perhaps not significantly high, but what we see in the trends and across the world, 18 to 25 tend to be really very vulnerable. Then we go on to the uh, other side of the scale, um, most traditionally in in um in research, um, we tend to study loneliness in 65 and above, and and within that age group, we uh, there's there's actually very different um, experiences that we see in terms of reporting loneliness, um, and in fact, you know we shouldn't be classifying older people in and just as 65 and, and above. We, we see that 65 and, and above and to 70, 75 is very different from 75 to 85 and 85 onwards. And, and what we tend to find is that actually the, the OO, uh, you know, the ones on the, 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 the other end of the spectrum tend to be most vulnerable. Um, we would say, um, and that's 85 and above. And, and usually it's because it's really a stage of life where, um, you know, older people have got reduced social networks. So a lot of their friends have passed away um, and often bereaved as well. And, and, and then you have all the health effects that really mean that they can't actually get out of the house. So we have a very vulnerable group. And I would say the 65 to 75, especially when they're in good health, are often actually the ones who say they're too busy and they're too, you know, they're really enjoying retirement. <laughs> they're too busy to, to feel lonely. <laughs> so really, I think it's the OO that's really affected. Um, but I, ironically, I, we also see another trend which keeps happening in, in even in Australian data and my data that I, I notice is actually the 55 to 65 uh, you know, so people who are not old <laughs> tend to also have a spike then. And and some of the hypotheses could be that they have children that are leaving the house, they're going through different sorts of transitions, perhaps even kind of insecurity around employment or, or change in employment during that time. So um, that's, again, another interesting trend. But it, as a whole, globally, if we kind of look at the data, even across uh, accounting for age, we do know that people of lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds uh, actually tend to be the most disadvantaged. So I think it's really important to kind of think about loneliness as far as one of those, um, you know, it's really part and parcel of the social determinants of health, you know, um, and and being, um, you know, having a lower income, um, having uh, less education will, will mean that you would uh, be more predisposed to feeling feeling lonely at some point in your life. That's interesting, that age group, the 55 to 65, because I guess, Simony, that's the ages that people are typically retiring at, you know, and changing, coming out of a, a workplace where you've got people around you all the time to not having that I can understand how that might trigger people. Correct, Julia, and I think this is where uh, we're really excited to be partnering with Ending Loneliness together because I think through the work that um, Michelle's doing, um, we're going to be able to start to look at our strategy, uh, the ways in which we're supporting our, our customers, particularly through those large superannuation funds, 
So, you know, we, we, we know that people have, you know, they're really the prime of their career in, in those years and have so much to give to an organisation. And if loneliness is impacting their mental health and p- potentially causing them to retire earlier, that, that's certainly not good for the individual. It's not good for their retirement, uh, their superannuation. And it's also not good for productivity as a society. So, you know, the insights that um, Michelle brings to AIA will help us to think about initiatives and what we can do to help to educate um, our partners that we're working with around loneliness and and what can be done to improve like the, the social issue of uh, loneliness in our society. Michelle, when might loneliness turn into depression? That's a good question, Julia. We, we don't know. We know what we know. What we do know is actually it increases our odds of experiencing uh, depression down the line. Um, and in the community, um, you know, and if we think of, of depression and, and all the other mental health se- severity, uh, like social anxiety and paranoia, they're all on a continuum. So if we kind of think about uh, just normal levels of depression and, and it kind of some people might not be able to understand that, but basically the assumption is all of us will feel low mood. All of us are socially anxious um, and it doesn't have to be in a clinical level. What we do know is that if you're lonely uh, um, at one time point, you're more likely to um, experience higher levels of depression, social anxiety, and also kind of what, what we call non-clinical paranoia six months down the line. Um, so, we know it predisposes your odds of experiencing clinical depression. We know that it um, increases uh, severity of depression and social anxiety and paranoia as well uh, six months down the line. So I, I think it's also really important for people to make the distinction of, of loneliness versus depression. And people often ask me that question. Um, so loneliness is really about the distress that you feel about your relationships. But when when it's depression, it's very much that you feel very negative about every single aspect of your life, you know. And and if we're talking about clinical depression, it actually stops you from living the life that you want to live. And that's how, as psychologists, we make the distinction between depression as a normal experience or depression that is actually a clinical disorder. Thank you. And Michelle, did COVID have a, a big effect on loneliness that people were f- facing? Yeah, so just based on the global studies that I've um, looked at and also my own um, global longitudinal study, we found, especially in the first six months of the pandemic, um, you know, um, loneliness was, uh, was a, a, first of all, a major concern, um, loneliness and social isolation, because uh, uh, most of you will remember we actually had to socially isolate as well. <laughs> so, you know, we weren't seeing people, we were asked to change our routine. Uh, what we do know when we looked at the impact even that social restrictions had on our movement, uh, as social restrictions eased, um, so this is not taking uh, the data before COVID, but just on the onset of social restrictions, but in Melbourne and in parts of Sydney, we, we had high levels of restrictions and then they eased. We found that loneliness, as they eased, loneliness reduced slightly, um, depression reduced marginally, and um, unfortunately, social anxiety went up. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I think this is really a. If I kind of reflect on the data, you know, we were just wondering why that might be the case, and 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 I think it's really about, um, you know, 
the, the, the anxiety that people were having to interact with people again, you know, we were told for some time, don't see people, don't do this, don't do that, you know, uh, speak at a distance. And then when social restrictions ease, we had to change our behavior again. So people got really quite anxious about having to interact with people again. Um, we do know from the, the large data sets overseas is that loneliness increased, um, but marginally, because it, it is a shock to, to most people, but um, it wasn't as as much as we thought it, it was. Um, and um, I have to say, though, loneliness was, loneliness was a problem before COVID, so it was very hard for us to track because we didn't have the pre-COVID data as well to kind of look at the trajectory. But it was a problem before COVID. COVID hit. Um, it became an issue that people become more mindful about, <laughs> even though we all knew it was an issue before. And loneliness tends to be fairly stable as well. So it's um, less vulnerable to what we call shocks um, um, and fluctuations in the system. So it, it tends to be much more of a stable, some, some bits are, tend to be more stable and some bits tend to be more influenced by external states. Um, we did see some slight increases, but very much, very much marginally. And I guess it put the focus on loneliness, so people may have been more sympathetic to people around them. Yeah, I think if there's any kind of silver lining to this, I think a lot of people didn't think that they could ever be lonely. Um, you know, I think that the image of, of loneliness comes in the form of an older person in a nursing home, sitting by themselves, looking out the window, yearning for social connection. You know, and I think that that image has changed significantly for a lot of people when they actually started to feel, oh, hang on a second. Now that I'm challenged and now that I'm asked to change my behaviors, now that I have to change all my social routines, I can't even talk to the person that makes my coffee in the morning. Um, wow, I can see how someone could feel lonely. And the empathy, you know, and the realization that it could happen to them has most definitely increased. And I, I really encourage people to, to kind of use this experience to kind of maintain some of the good social behaviors that we should be doing anyway. You know, uh, we should be saying hi, we should be smiling, we should be, um, you know, touching base with people, having having conversations with people that, you know, just, just you know, hi, bye and, and, and building, thinking about building acquaintances into friends. All those behaviors are so critical to our well-being and actually understanding what, COVID has done and made us change our behavior and, and now having this opportunity to rebuild, I think that's really important that we kind of take some of these behaviors now and kind of forge stronger social connections within our families and our communities. And Sim? Yeah, I think Michelle's point there is um, so valuable. We know that one in four Australians were lonely before the pandemic. Um, and that, that I think that experience has all given us a little taste of what loneliness can be like. Um, so I, I think that the learnings that Michelle's given us there is is really is really fabulous. And I love that she's mentioned earlier that it's normal to feel lonely. It's like being hungry or thirsty. I think we live in an environment where you look at social media and you think, oh, everybody's so connected and they're out doing fabulous things and I'm not. And uh, there's there's almost embarrassment. People don't want to say that they're lonely, but it is okay to say that you're lonely and, and being given the school skills to know what to do to improve that loneliness is uh, such a beneficial thing. Yeah, that is fascinating, the social media side of it and thinking that everyone's connected, whereas they're not necessarily everybody's having the same issues. 
This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, both of you, for exposing, you know, what loneliness is all about and, you know, putting a bit of focus on it because I think it is really important and especially around, you know, seasons like Christmas and New Year and not everybody's going to be gathering with people. So it, it's a good time to think about other people. So thank you both. Thanks, Julia. You've been listening to The Future of Super with Simony Fox and Michelle Lim. Thank you.